Well, you know, you all know, I think most of you know, the majority of you know that Christmas is my favorite holiday, and yet I have to confess that, that every year it's kind of the same thing. I get very excited uh, building up on one of these guys with calendars, and you mark down the days, and I'd like to say it was a, a, you know, kind of an advent calendar, but it's more just straight numbers to get to the big day. And uh, every year it's the same. I'm disappointed that, that the anticipation of this is never, it's never reality. I, 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 never, I never experience the gifts or the, or the food or the family or the parties or whatever. It never measures up. And it's not related to Carol or the kids. It's just we tend to build things up. We have such a hunger that is just not satisfied. And I find that this issue with Christmas is really a microcosm of our lives, that, that there is uh, dissatisfaction across the board. Going to college is going to be everything. It doesn't measure up. The first job, I'll finally, that's when I'll start hitting some happiness. That doesn't measure up. Marriage, sexuality, careers, retirement, it just never seems to measure up to satisfy the longings and the desires that you have. Now, over this month, we've been looking at this idea of, of Christ coming. And, and, and we looked at why did he come? The first week, we looked at he came to propitiate God, to absorb the wrath of God so that we might be forgiven. And, and, and then he came as well uh, to, to be born under a law so as to fulfill the law that we might be adopted with full rights as sons, even given the spirit that we'd be able to cry, Abba, Father. And, and then the next week, we looked at why he came. He came to establish a kingdom. I mean, we worried about who gets to say Merry Christmas in Walmart or not. He's, he's brought a kingdom. A kingdom that is unshakable and established forever. And, and then today, we're going to see that he came to bring a great salvation. I, I, I want you to think with me that if we grasp the greatness of the nature of the salvation he came to bring, it will give you contentment, peace, and joy in the midst of perhaps continual needs that you have right now. I, I, I'm reminded by the writer of Hebrews, he says, do not neglect so great a salvation. We're going to look at what makes this salvation so great. So if you turn with me to John chapter 6, we'll read 35 to 40. John chapter 6, 35 to 40. I, I just want to tease out why is this salvation so great. Jesus, in 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So with me, this great salvation, I just want to give you three hooks to, to hang on. Uh, the first, this, this salvation that he's going to bring is going to satisfy. It's going to satisfy us. Uh, secondly, this salvation is going to mystify us. It will mystify us when we look at particularly at 37. And, and then last, this salvation is going to secure us forever. So it's going to satisfy, it's going to mystify, and it's going to secure us. Let's look at the satisfaction real quick. In, in 35, it says, I'm the bread of life. Now, 
Uh, obviously, chapter 6 is set in a glorious context. John Bunyan called this the blessed sixth of John. It's profound. The whole chapter is. It begins with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that? Jesus feeds 5,000 men, presumably families, wives, maybe children were with some of these men. It was a huge group with a few loaves and some fish. He feeds them all. He satisfies them. There were leftovers. So at our home, when there's leftovers, everybody's full. When there's leftovers here, everybody's had their full. They are satisfied. Now, the people were right to see this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 as kind of a reminder of the miracle of the manna when God fed Israel with bread from heaven. And so they saw that, and they said, well, he must be the Messiah. In fact, in verse 15, they, they wanted to make him king. Now, remember, at this time in Jewish thought, the Messiah would renew the miracle of the manna. So when he fed them, they said, he's the Messiah. But here's what they missed. They came up to him, and they said, well, Moses fed us every day. You've only fed us once. And so Jesus chides them about them pursuing things that perish. And he chides them that they missed the sign. In other words, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was a sign from God that Jesus was the Son of Man who had come down from heaven to satisfy us with himself. And they missed that. They missed it because you look, if you were to look in your Bibles in verse 34, it says, Sir, give us this bread. In other words, okay, if that wasn't the bread that's going to satisfy forever, give us the bread that will. And that's what Jesus, that's what prompts Jesus to say, I'm the bread of life. In other words, they wanted bread for life. They didn't want the bread of life. They missed the sign. And this is what prompts Jesus to say, whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. Jesus has come to satisfy us with himself. It's a claim to divinity that he is God. I am the bread of life. In fact, Jesus is really echoing the words of Isaiah in chapter 55. Listen to these words. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live, that your soul may be satisfied. I mean, that, that's, Jesus has come to bring us salvation that satisfies. Now, now, what is common to all of us here, and we know this, is you have many hungers and wants. And if you have any years under your belt, you know they're often not satisfied. You know that. I mean, we don't. One of my favorite songs from the Rolling Stones was, can't get no satisfaction. Mick Jagger was just saying what we know. We know you cannot get any satisfaction. There is no satisfaction in this life. And when you look at your lives, just real quickly, what, what it, like as Isaiah said, he says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? What are you pursuing so doggedly right now? I mean, what do you think is going to give you the joy? See, the natural man or the man who lives without reference to God tries to find joy and satisfaction in the things of this world. It may be food, it may be peer approval, it may be success in business. It may be relationships. 
Maybe having the perfect family with well-behaved kids. It may be a dynamic marriage. What is it? See, it's a precarious life you live because when you try to find your joy in the things of this world, and joy has to come out of some object that by design perishes, you're running a really dangerous route. It's very, very dangerous. If it's a body, if you want to have the best body, what do you do when age begins to just pile up years? If you want to have a stellar career, what happens when the young guy comes that's smarter than you, has more time than you, and can outshine you? What do you do when you're resting on this pond of money that's going to carry you through retirement, and that we're approaching this fiscal cliff? I mean, do you see? These things are designed to perish. But you still have these wants. You still have these desires. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote about this in Mere Christianity, trying to evidence the reality that God has made us. He says, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us and when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. I mean, don't you feel that? Isn't it almost more acute at Christmas when when all these expectations don't materialize? I mean, what have you been pursuing? What have you been chasing? What has failed to satisfy? See, the Christian, the Christian understands the difference between what is a real need and what is a superficial and temporal need. The Christian actually understands that dissatisfaction is a good thing because dissatisfaction is the grace of God to remind us you can't get what you need out of that or out of anything that is designed to perish. You can't get it. And so Jesus' words, come to me and you will no longer hunger. Believe in me and you will no longer thirst. The Christian knows that only in Christ can we be satisfied. Because what Christ brings is something more than material, something more than temporal, something more than visual. He brings us this offer of forgiveness, reconciliation with God, a future hope with God forever in glory, and a pleasure and a passion that only God can satisfy. And this is what he offers us. And the Christian knows this. And the Christian will will fight the distractions and the dullness. It's like when your kids have eaten a bag of popcorn before you've prepared a beautiful meal. The Christian repents over the pursuit of these little idolatries that do not satisfy. Because Jesus has come to bring a salvation that satisfies. It's a great salvation. It satisfies us. Carol and I have known want and we have known plenty. But in both seasons, Christ has always been sufficient to give us the joy that both stations could never produce. So that's the first thing about the greatness of the salvation. It is designed 
to satisfy that part of you that God has designed that nothing in creation will satisfy. So how satisfied are you? And you look at your marriage. You look at your parenting. You look at your life. Do you have it all? Are you there? Are you tapped out? Second thing about this great salvation is it mystifies. It mystifies us. I mean, you look at this crowd that came to Jesus. They had seen him feed the 5,000. In all likelihood, they also had heard about the miracle of walking on water. And yet they didn't believe. If you look in verse 36, it says, you see, but you don't believe. Does that ever concern you? Do you ever wonder why some people believe and some people don't? I mean, does it ever cause you consternation to think they saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, and they didn't believe Jesus? What do you do with that? I think this passage kind of explains it, why people don't believe. I think it kind of unveils for us an answer that is very mysterious. In fact, sometimes when you look at people and you present the gospel, they're wise, they hear it, they understand it, they agree with you, and they do nothing. And you sit there, has God's plan failed? I mean, mean, is God's plan in jeopardy? All these people are rejecting Jesus. What do you do with that? Well, look with me at verse 37. Jesus doesn't seem as concerned as sometimes we are. Jesus doesn't seem so tripped up by disbelief as we do. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, he's saying the same thing in that one verse. He's saying the first part of it, all that the Father gives to me. So I want you to think of this collective group. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And and then he speaks more on an individual level. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's it's collective and individual. It's kind of like the whole town came out to see him. Every single citizen did. So that's what he's saying, that, that all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. what, What Jesus is saying here is, no, God's plan of redemption is solid. It's going to occur. All those that will, that have been given to me will come to me. Uh, it, it's speaking to the fact that God and the Son are working together in this picture of redemption. That God is giving those to the Son that will come and believe on him. Now, I, I know this is mysterious. This is, it, it's Yeah, it's a mysterious thing to try to understand this divine sovereignty and this human responsibility. You don't see Jesus give any explanations. You don't see him try to to explain the mystery away. He makes no defense. He simply says, this is what it is. God is going to give me a people, and and they will come to me. Now, why is this so? Uh, Why does it have to be this way? Well, of course, I I could tell you that it's because of the hardness of our hearts, the deadness of our souls, the deafness of of our ears to the voice of God. I mean, I, I would say to you that if you believe here right now, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that has been sent to save you, that God has revealed that to you. That if you see Christ is glorious in the bread of life, God has has pulled back the curtain and you have seen his glory. That God has opened your eyes to these truths. Leon Morris is a a modern-day theologian. He says, unless God moves with mercy, people are relatively contented in their sin. I think that's true. People are content. As long as their sin is somewhat socially acceptable, they're they're contented with it. 
But, but this passage, Jesus is giving the full responsibility of salvation to God, giving a people to Jesus. Now, if you think that I'm just pulling this verse out, if you were to go to verse 44, he says the same thing. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. No one will come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, this sermon, some pastors call a space maker. So you're saying, hey, Tom, you're going to talk about, are we talking about predestination here? Are we talking about election? Absolutely, I am. And, and, and people are thinking, whoa, we're out of here at the next song. And, and, and th- th- this can't be true. And, and I, I do want to remind you, if that does touch you, and you think, I do want to leave, I want to remind you that they wanted to leave Jesus when, they said, when he said the same thing. They left him over predestination. If you were to stay in chapter 6 and you were to roll to verse 63 with me, I'll read it for you. Here's what happens. Jesus is dealing with these people who disbelieved. He says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So Jesus is speaking to the crowds and saying, I know you don't believe. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They left him over this doctrine. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you see what's happening? This is a mysterious salvation. It's incredibly rich and profound that it takes God to give people to Jesus for Jesus to save them. It's a mystery. Charles Spurgeon, who uh, I know I'm going to okay with his quotes by the end of this career, but you'll at least know him and when you see him. You'll be able to talk to him about it. Here's, here's his testimony when he was 16 years of age. He says this, Well, can I remember the manner in which I learned the doctrines of grace in a single instant? Born as all of us are by nature, uh, I did not see the grace of God when I was coming to Christ. I thought I was doing it all myself. And, and though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I don't think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received these truths into my soul when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart with a hot iron. I can recollect now how I felt that I'd grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, and that I'd made progress in scriptural knowledge. Here's what he says. The thought struck me. He said, I was sitting in the house of God. Thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make it my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. This is a profound mystery here, and I don't mean to reconcile it all for you. The the truth is that God is sovereign, 
and the election of people to be saved. And man is responsible to respond in faith to God. They both exist. If you take one away, if you take the divine sovereign election, you take that away, you have a gospel of merit. And we already read in 63 where he says the flesh won't help you at all. You take away the responsibility of man and we have fatalism, determinism. They both coexist, but the emphasis remains on God and on God alone. And I think you instinctively know this. Because when you deal with a person, it may be a husband, it may be a child, they're headed in destructive ways. They're turning their back on God. What do you instinctively do? You turn to God. God, have mercy on them. God, open their eyes to your glory. God, grant them repentance. These are all biblical prayers. What are you doing? You're asking God to intervene and to roll over the heart of this person so that they might open their eyes to the beauty of God and find their satisfaction in him. You and I do that all the time. We instinctively turn to God. God, run roughshod over their soul to save them because we know that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we turn to him. So while it's a mystery, we embrace it. We embrace that. But why does it have to be this way? Why can't every man just decide for himself? I mean, why is it that those who see the most believe the least? Those who believe the most often see the least. Why is it? Here's why. So that no one would boast. So that no one will stand before him. This is where Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in London, 20th century, says, the Christian is the man whose mouth is shut. You just stand there in wonderment over what God would have done for you. Paul said this exact thing in 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is a great salvation. This is a mysterious of it. It satisfies, but it is profoundly mysterious. But thirdly, while it may be mysterious, it is not uncertain. It is not uncertain at all. There is a confidence that the Lord Christ wants us to draw from the reality of this salvation. And you see it right in 38 and 39. He's going to explain his incarnation to us. And it's going to provide assurance for us that those who are in Christ are in Christ forever. Look what he says in 38 and 39. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I have come down. The purpose of the incarnation is to secure a people that have been given to me by God so that I can return it to God on that last day. I mean, it's inconceivable that Jesus won't save everyone given to him. I mean, if Jesus were to not be able to do so, it would mean he's either incapable of saving or unwilling to save, bringing eternal shame on himself. You see this, the perfect will of God matches the perfect obedience of the Son to do the will of God. That's what our salvation rests upon. That's the security for the believer that the Son has walked out perfectly the will of the Father, the will that we could never have walked out perfectly. I mean, what confidence does this provide for you? The perfect Son doing the perfect will of God, drawing together people, saving them, and bringing them back to the Father forever. And he says, 
that on the last day, all the way until the last day, I mean, we, we bury our loved ones, we put them into caskets, we say goodbye, we mourn, we stick them in the ground, and it looks as if death has somehow won a victory, or at least a temporary victory. But that's not so. Like Lazarus, he will call us out. Even every speck of flesh will be reconstituted and glorified until the last day. He will bring them to the Father. Jesus has said, not one thing, not one person will I lose. It's a profound salvation. The certainty and the assurance that we have is grounded in Christ being perfectly obedient to the Father. That's what our hope is for. See, the Christian here, if you're a Christian, the Christian is thinking, my confidence in the certainty of salvation doesn't rest in my grip on God, but on God's grip on me in Christ. My confidence, the Christian's confidence, is in the perfect obedience of the Son that has satisfied the Father. The the Christian doesn't look to his performance for confidence. Your fruit may evidence or may display salvation, but it doesn't save. Christ saves. The nature of sanctification is highs and lows all the time. Through life, it's fits and starts. It's forward and backwards. There's, it's very inconsistent. If you try to look at your performance as assuring you of salvation, you are up for a he loves me, he loves me not kind of life. It's very, very tenuous. No, the Christian rests in this dynamic between the Father and the Son through the power of the Spirit assuring salvation. So this is a great salvation. This salvation is absolutely satisfying to us. It does mystify us, no question about it. But secure will we be until the end. So what do we do with such a salvation? How do you respond to this sort of thing? What should you, people in front of me, what should you do for this? Well, I think he tells us in verse 40. In verse 40 is kind of this response. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this is kind of, if you will, the human side of this divine salvation. This is kind of the response. This really kind of opens up for us uh, how one gets in a relationship with God in Christ. Uh, For those of you here, uh, you may be uncertain about your relationship with God. You may be uncertain about your salvation. Uh, Maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe you're just thinking, well, You know, you're coming into the first time thinking about these issues. Well, this is really important for you in verse 40. Verse 40 really shows us how one becomes a Christian. And you notice what he says. He says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. This idea of to look isn't just to see on some superficial perception, right? Because you see in 36 how they saw him but didn't believe. So it's more than that. To look upon the Son means to apprehend, to comprehend, to grasp that that Jesus is God's bread of life to feed us forever and to satisfy us forever. I mean, to look upon the Son is to grasp God's testimony of His own Son. And when you look upon the Son 
And it leads to belief. And when I speak about belief, I'm not speaking about that you agree to some theological set of precepts, but in fact, you're resting, you're submitting, you're feasting on him. You're, living, you're trusting in all that he's done, all that he is. That you don't have a little Jesus and have a little bit of life. You're sold out, you're moving towards Christ. You're following with everything you have. Not perfectly, but diligently. In fact, to believe, this is what J.C. Ryle, another great uh, Anglican minister in the 19th century, said. He says, faith is the hand that we lay hold of Christ, the eye that we look to him, the mouth by which we feed on him, the foot by which we follow him. It, it isn't necessarily meted out through some special formulaic prayer. I mean, to become a Christian, what he means is, is, that, is that what we are beginning to do is no longer look to ourselves to be right with God, but look to Christ. We look outside. In fact, A.W. Tozier, uh, a U.S. pastor in the um, 20th century, mid-20th century, says, faith is not in itself a meritorious act. The merit is in the one to whom it's directed. Faith is a redirecting of our sight, a getting out of focus of our own vision and getting God into focus. Sin twisted our vision inward and made it self-regarding. Unbelief has put self where God should be. Faith looks outside of in, and the whole life falls into line. In other words, it's that dissatisfaction that you may be feeling. It's that frustration. It's the guilt that you have over the sins that you've committed. It's that cumulative weight of your life hasn't measured up to the way you thought it should be. It's that sense of the reality of God is beginning to dawn on you, his glory and his power and his magnificence, and you realize you've lived your life absolutely for yourself and for your own kingdom. You have constantly tried to satisfy yourself on the offerings of the world, and you are just now coming to terms with the reality that you're dissatisfied and you want something more. To have faith means that you turn all that, you just look to Christ. Save me for myself. Save me from my sin. That's what it means to become a Christian. But for many of you here, you're Christians. You're thinking, well, that's, I, I, I did that. You know, a few years back, I did that. Oh, how do I respond to such a great salvation, a salvation that satisfies and, and mystifies and, and secures me until the end? What do I do with that? To, to the Christian, you know, though, that life is not passive. You know it's active. You're constantly engaged in life. You're not floating down the lazy river until you see him. It's a very active life, and he has given us the divine means of grace on how the soul is preserved and how the soul perseveres. And and you really persevere out of verse 40 in a similar way. To the Christian, you're looking upon the Son and believing him just the same, not for justification, but in sanctifying ways. Let me explain what I mean. To look upon the Son and, and, and to believe on him is to feast on the obedience of Christ. In other words, you, the Christian, what do you, how do we respond to this great salvation? Well, I'm thinking about the obedience of Christ satisfying the Father so that I'm now approved. The, 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 I live a joy-filled life because I'm no longer in bondage to keeping the law because the Son has kept it for me. So I'm satisfied in God. I'm happy. I'm very happy because I have one who in my stead did all that the Father required. And so... I feast on Christ. I think about his active obedience for me, his righteousness that has been applied to my account. I'm thankful for that. That's how I respond. Thinking about the active obedience to Christ perseveres you in faith. 
When you have cancer, that sustains you. When you wonder about your salvation and relationship with God, that upholds you. This is how we're persevered in this faith. We're thinking about his act of obedience. But secondly, to look upon the Son and believe is to feast on his sacrifice for us. And Jesus said he's the bread of life. In a few chapters, he's going to speak about himself being bread again, but this time the bread is broken in half for us. Remember that idea of Jesus being the bread of life, but then hanging on the cross where he satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. His body was broken. Remember what I said three weeks ago. The wrath of God was spent on the Son. Can't you imagine God just going, it's all done. He's tired, if you will. Because he's poured it all out on the Son. He has no wrath for us. He has no judgment for us because the Son's born it all. That's how we persevere. When I'm uncertain to my salvation, I begin to think, is God going to judge me for that? I, I look upon the Son, but the wrath was spent on him, not on me. And it leads me to joy and satisfaction and a deeper love for God. Thirdly, to look upon and to, to believe the Son is to, be, is to be satisfied in his intercession. You're right now, Christian, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God pleading for you, interceding for you. You know, we sing that song, Arise, My Soul, Arise. His five, plead, his five bleeding wounds plead for me. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Father, even in my mess of life, he's saying, Father, he is in a covenant with you through my blood. He's appealing to the Father as my advocate, saying he is yours, he is your son. Gives me encouragement, confidence. It gives me, here's what it gives me. It gives me the assurance that in the midst of my sin, I can go back to God and receive forgiveness and restoration and hope. It gives me great encouragement. It perseveres me in this life when I'm being bombarded with darkness. But to look upon the sun and to believe also draws our mind to that last day. That last day. Do you think about that day? This is what preserves us. This is what maintains a faithfulness so that when you're 87, you're still believing strongly in the greatness of Christ because you know that day as it approaches will be the day that you hear the voice of Christ calling you to come. And you will come. All of you will come. Nothing will be lost, he said. It will all come. And we'll stand before him with joy and satisfaction and peace. This is what preserves us. When you begin to suffer and struggle in life, and you think about that last day, and you think about the Messiah calling you forth, that will sustain you and encourage you. Just two more. To look upon and believe the Son is to feast on the satisfaction of Christ in this life. What do I mean by this? I mean this. That when you become a Christian, your obedience now is birthed out of a satisfaction and joy of what he has done for you and what he will do for you. In other words, I I don't obey out of duty and out of responsibility. I I obey out of delight. Why? Because now in Christ, following Christ leads me to greater pleasure. You know the temptation, so you're tempted to sin. Maybe you have a juicy piece of gossip you really want to share about somebody. And you're just itching to, you know, it's right there. You got it. It's good. They're going to listen to you like you were divine. And you're debating whether I should say it or not. And then, boom, you blast it out. 
and it feels good to say it, they're wowing. Oh, really? Are you kidding me? And, and they're doing that. And, and then the backwash of guilt comes in. And, and, and that initial pleasure of having the morsel of truth that somebody needed so that they would really like you. The backwash of guilt comes in and you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. And then you start debating, well, what are they going to say? If they say it to this person, and then you start self-protecting, and you start self-defending while well, they deserved it, you, and then all of a sudden you spin yourself in a hole. And was it worth it? Or the guy that's tempted by the pornography, and he thinks, well, just, just, just one little peek. It's not that big a deal. And, and, and you take the peek, and, and there is pleasure there, right? There's pleasure for, for just a moment. But then that backwash of guilt comes in. And whatever pleasure there was is now removed. And it's, it's compounded with guilt. And yet what Jesus offers us is obedience to Christ leads to a pleasure. When you turn your eyes away, when you keep your mouth shut, you're satisfied in the obedience from the joy that you get from Christ. So it changes us to look upon and believe the Son Leads to great satisfaction. And then last, for the Christian here to look upon the Son and to believe is to feast on your opportunity to proclaim this message. This is a message uh, that is worthy. This salvation is so great, satisfying, mystifying, securing us to the end. It needs to be proclaimed. But you say, well, hold it, Tom. It's all that the Father has given to me. None will I lose. Why should I preach the gospel? God's already given the, the group to the Son. I don't need to preach the gospel. I'd say, absolutely, you need to preach the gospel. In fact, this is the reason why you should have confidence in preaching the gospel, because you know that it will be effective. God has both ordained all that has been given to the Son, but he's also ordained the means, and the means are through preaching the gospel. How will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone's sent? That's you. That's me. The privilege we have to behold the Son, and to believe on him is to feast on the opportunity to declare this great and glorious message. So, folks, we have a great salvation. For the Christian, we have a great salvation. It is satisfying to us. It does mystify us, but it will secure you to the end. So let's take a few minutes, and what we want to do <clears throat> is uh, I would ask you, we're going to have a time of corporate prayer where we are now responding to the word as broken. And, and what I would encourage you is keep your Bibles open, keep your minds fresh so that you can speak to the excellencies of the one who has drawn you to himself. And I would encourage you, uh, if you are to pray, and I, uh, that you would pray briefly and loudly so that we can join with you. This is a small foretaste of heaven. So when we're gathered around the throne of grace, we're not just going to be looking at each other with our hands in our pockets, but we're going to be speaking to the king of glory of his excellencies and worth. And so that's what we're doing now. And then um, after a few minutes, Ray's going to close us. Let me begin for us.